Hello and welcome. You are listening to Patrick Boyle on Finance, a podcast exploring ideas from quantitative finance, examining events occurring in markets right now and financial history to see what lessons can be taken away, including interviews with some of the most interesting people in the world of finance. To learn more about the podcast, visit onfinance.org. Hello and welcome back to Patrick Boyle on Finance. In today's podcast, we'll look at some of the biggest corporate scandals since the turn of the century in no particular order, and we'll see if there's anything we can learn from them. Okay, so first up we have Theranos, the blood testing company. Like all good tech founders, Elizabeth Holmes had a great backstory. Her father had worked for an aid agency overseeing relief work, and Elizabeth claimed that she had been brought up wanting to change the world for the better. At the age of 19, she came up with an idea that she believed could change the world. So like all tech founders before her, she dropped out of university, started dressing like Steve Jobs, and filed her first patent. The only problem at this point in the story is that her idea didn't work. Theranos was a blood testing company. And while the existing technology for blood testing requires one vial of blood for each diagnostic test, Theranos claimed to be able to perform over 240 tests, ranging from checking cholesterol levels to complex genetic analysis, with just a single pinprick of blood. The technology was automated fast and inexpensive. Theranos would revolutionise medicine and save lives the world over. The blood was put in a nano-container and analysed in the Theranos Edison machine. I think the name Tesla had already been taken. The pitch appealed to the pharmacy chain Walgreens, who partnered with Theranos offering the blood tests in its stores. Theranos raised over $700 million from brand name investors like Larry Ellison and Tim Draper and was seen as a rising star in Silicon Valley. It was valued at over $9 billion, and Holmes, who owned more than half of the company, was the world's youngest female self-made billionaire. She had a lot of big names on her board of directors, including two former U.S. Secretaries of State, Henry Kissinger and George Shultz. With hindsight, it's easy to point out that few of the big names, while famous, had any experience in medicine or science. John Cario, a journalist at the Wall Street Journal, first broke the story in 2015 after receiving a tip that the technology did not work. His interest was triggered by Holmes' alleged ability to invent a groundbreaking medical technology after just two semesters of chemical engineering classes. Employees began sharing their experiences at the company, revealing lies to board members a culture of intimidation and secrecy, technology that never worked, and worst of all, test results sent to real patients that were false. Life-changing medical decisions were being made based upon these fabricated test results. The entire company had been built on a foundation of lies. The Wall Street Journal revealed that Theranos was not using its own technology to run the majority of its tests, due to the fact that the Edison machines did not work. At first, Holmes denied the claims, 
threatening to sue both the journalist and the Wall Street Journal. In 2018, Holmes stepped down as CEO and was charged with criminal fraud, having misled investors and made false claims about the blood testing technology. The SEC summed up what was wrong with Ms. Holmes and Theranos in a damning report that finished with the line, Innovators who seek to revolutionise and disrupt an industry must tell investors the truth about what their technology can do today, not just what they hope it might do someday. Okay, our next company up is Luck & Coffee. Luck & Coffee had an ambitious goal, to defeat Starbucks in China selling coffee to a nation of tea drinkers. Because there would be an app, it is of course a technology company and disruptive. And because investors love tech and they love apps and they love disruption, most didn't notice that the coffee was terrible. Founded in 2017 with capital from some of the highest profile Asia-focused VC firms, Luck & Coffee was quickly valued at $1 billion. They opened 5,000 locations and reported sales of as much as $200 million a quarter in 2019. This success drew in big international investors like BlackRock and support from banks including Credit Suisse. Luckin went public in the United States in May 2019, raising $561 million. The overall firm was valued at more than $4 billion. Its founder had a long business history, firstly in the telecom industry, then auto insurance, and then car rentals, where he raised hundreds of millions of dollars from international investors, built up a car rental company that went public and then collapsed. Carson Block, a well-known short seller, watched Luckin's rising share price with scepticism. In autumn of 2019, Luckin reported an almost six-fold increase in quarterly sales. While Block suspected some of Luckin's sales weren't real, proving it would be expensive. But then, in late 2019, a fund manager contacted him with the results of an investigation, requesting that Block release it. The fund manager had created a research report, which was the work of more than a thousand investigators, who monitored sales and foot traffic at Luckin locations in China. They had gathered more than 25,000 receipts from customers. The report showed that Luckin was inflating the number of items sold per day by 69% in the third quarter of 2019 and 88% in the fourth. It also concluded that the average cost of items sold was lower than the company had reported. In other words, Luckin was a fraud. Luckin denied the allegations. Its stock price plunged immediately after the report came out, but then recovered. Auditors from EY were working on Luckin's 2019 accounts and found evidence that some managers had been fabricating transactions. The false sales had inflated the company's income, costs and expenses. In April 2020, Luckin said that its chief operating officer and some employees might have faked more than $300 million in revenue. A special committee would conduct an internal investigation. 
This announcement resulted in the stock price crashing and several executives being fired. Trading was then suspended and the company was delisted from NASDAQ in June 2020. The company filed for Chapter 15 bankruptcy in the US in February 2021. Luckin says the company's outlets remain open for business and the Chapter 15 petition is not expected to affect its day-to-day operations. Our number three company is Wirecard. Wirecard was a German fintech firm launched in the late stages of the dot-com boom in 1999 as a payment processor, helping web-based stores to collect credit card payments from their customers. They almost went bust in the early 2000s, and in 2002, Marcus Brown, a former KPMG consultant, who once again dressed like Steve Jobs, took over as the new chief executive. They went public, not by the normal route, but by taking over the listing of a defunct company, thus avoiding the scrutiny usually applied to an IPO, a lot like the way SPACs do. It actually went on to become a member of the German DAX index. In 2006, Wirecard moved into banking, meaning that they could both issue credit cards and handle money on behalf of merchants. This was a unique hybrid of banking and non-banking businesses, and made Wirecard difficult to compare with its peers. This helped them to persuade investors to rely on adjusted versions of financial statements. In the 2010s, Wirecard went on a shopping spree, buying up small payments companies across Asia in a series of oddly structured deals. In 2015, the Financial Times began writing a series of articles raising questions about inconsistencies in the group's accounts. The core of the fraud was a small Dubai-based third-party acquirer called Alalam Solutions. Acquirers are the link in the payments chain that collects money from card issuers and deposits it in store owners' bank accounts. Merchants will usually negotiate directly with the acquirers to process payments on their behalf. For each payment that acquirers help route, they charge a fee. On paper, Alalam was one of Wirecard's most valuable assets, processing billions of dollars of payments across Europe, the Middle East and the United States. Yet when the Financial Times investigated, they found an operation with just seven full-time employees, the FT called up the biggest customers of Al-Alam. Fifteen said that they had never heard of Al-Alam, and eight of the big customers were no longer in business. In addition, neither Visa nor MasterCard could confirm any relationship whatsoever with Al-Alam. So Wirecard was inflating revenue by reporting false transactions these false transactions led to fees that were reported and recognized as revenue, but never existed and were then deposited in fake offshore bank accounts. Over a 10-year period, this led to $2.2 billion in false revenues. The Financial Times posted story after story describing these inaccuracies and what do you think happened? Wirecard accused the Financial Times of conspiring 
with evil short sellers to bring their stock price down. This tactic actually worked, and Germany's financial regulatory authority, BaFin, filed a complaint against the FT and also banned short selling of Wirecard stock. This was the first time that a regulator had ever banned short sales of an individual stock. In June 2020, Wirecard caved in and announced that 1.9 billion euros was missing, and the next day, Marcus Brown, the CEO, resigned. Wirecard later announced that the 1.9 billion euros of cash probably never existed. Marcus Brown was arrested and Wirecard filed for insolvency. Okay, our number four corporate scandal is WorldCom. Bernie Ebers started out his career as a bar bouncer, then going on to be a milkman and then a school teacher. He managed a garment warehouse and then began buying up small hotels, one of which included a long-distance telephone service as a sideline. This sideline business became LDS and was later renamed Worldcom a decade later. By 1999, Bernie was a billionaire, and Worldcom was one of the stars of the new internet economy. From its humble beginnings, Worldcom expanded through an aggressive growth-by-acquisition strategy, eventually becoming the second-largest long-distance telephone company in the United States and one of the largest companies handling internet data traffic worldwide. Worldcom bought 65 companies over a six-year period, between 1991 and 1997. Mergers and acquisitions obviously present significant challenges for company managers. Firstly, management has to integrate the organizations into a single smoothly functioning business. And secondly, they must account for the financial aspects of the acquisition. WorldCom did not do a great job of integrating these purchases. Dozens of conflicting computer systems were in place, and billing systems were never coordinated. These issues were ignored by investors at the time. WorldCom used a liberal interpretation of accounting rules when preparing their financial statements. WorldCom would write down millions of dollars in assets it acquired, while, including in this charge against earnings, the cost of company expenses expected in the future. The result was bigger losses up front, but smaller ones going forward, so that the profit picture would appear to be improving. As long as they could continue doing acquisitions, WorldCom could continue these practices. But in 1999, revenue growth slowed and the stock price began falling. The growth through acquisition strategy was stopped dead in its tracks in 2000, when WorldCom's proposed merger with Sprint was blocked due to competition concerns. WorldCom's earnings were not going to meet analyst expectations, so in order to increase revenue, WorldCom reduced its accounting reserves tied to the mergers by $2.8 billion dollars and they moved this money into the revenue line of their financial statements. This wasn't good enough, though, so in 2000 they began classifying operating expenses as long-term capital investments. 
These were expenses like rentals on phone lines paid out to other telecom companies. This gave WorldCom another $3.85 billion and turned their losses into profits of $1.38 billion for 2001. It also made WorldCom's assets appear more valuable. The fraud was uncovered when an internal auditor, Cynthia Cooper, discovered the fraudulent balance sheet entries. Eventually, WorldCom was forced to admit that it had overstated its assets by over $11 billion. At this time, it was the largest accounting fraud in American history. In 2002, WorldCom filed for bankruptcy protection, and in 2005, Bernie Ebers was found guilty of fraud, conspiracy, and filing false documents with regulators. He was sentenced to 25 years in prison and died in February 2020. Okay, finally, we have Enron, which was founded in 1985 by Ken Lay in the merger of two natural gas pipeline companies. Deregulation in the early 1990s meant that Enron lost its exclusive right to operate its own pipelines. With the help of Jeffrey Skilling, a former consultant, Enron transformed itself into a trader of energy derivative contracts, acting as an intermediary between natural gas producers and their customers. Enron soon dominated the market for natural gas contracts and started to generate huge profits. The bull market of the 1990s helped to fuel Enron's ambitions and contributed to its rapid growth. The company was ready to create a market for anything that anyone was willing to trade. It traded derivative contracts for a wide variety of commodities, including electricity, coal, paper, steel, and even for the weather. An online trading division, Enron Online, was launched during the dot-com boom, and the company invested in building a broadband telecommunications network to facilitate high-speed trading. Enron was named America's most innovative company by Fortune magazine every year from 1996 through to 2001, the year it went bankrupt. Enron rode the dot-com wave to superstar status and became the seventh largest company in the United States, at least on paper. As the boom years came to an end, and as Enron faced increased competition in the energy trading business, the company's profits shrank rapidly. Company executives began to rely on dubious accounting practices, including a shift to mark-to-model and mark-to-market accounting, which they had successfully lobbied the SEC to allow for their business. This allowed the company to write unrealized future gains from trading into current income statements, thus giving the illusion of higher current profits. The troubled business lines of the company were transferred to a special purpose entity. Doing this meant that they were kept off Enron's books, making its losses look less severe than they really were. Notorious short-selling hedge fund manager Jim Chanos noticed several red flags in their accounts and initiated a short position. The SEC began investigating their accounts, and as the deals of the frauds emerged, the stock price fell from $90 per share 
to less than $1. Lay and Skilling resigned, and Fastow, the CFO, was fired two days after the SEC investigation started. On December 2, 2001, Enron filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. Many Enron executives were indicted on a variety of charges and were later sentenced to prison. Arthur Anderson, their auditor, who had also worked as a consultant for the firm, came under intense scrutiny and was eventually dissolved due to the scandal. The scandal resulted in a wave of new regulations and legislation, such as the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, designed to increase the accuracy of financial reporting. The Act also prohibited auditing firms from doing any concurrent consulting business for the clients they audit. Well, that's it. That's our top five list. There are, of course, many more companies I could have included, but we only have so much time. Let me know in the comments section who you think should have been included and what lessons you take away from these cautionary tales. One of the more noticeable commonalities I spotted when researching this piece was so many of the scandal-ridden companies were in traditional businesses, things like coffee shops, gas pipelines, and healthcare, but claimed to be new economy technology companies. Thanks for listening and tune in again next week for a new episode. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted. Thank you to everyone who is supporting this content on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can find more like it on YouTube, on the Patrick Boyle on Finance channel, or follow us on Twitter at Patrick E. Boyle. Thanks for listening. Bye.